Imagine you live in a small box house. You, your spouse, and your kids split just a few hundred square feet. But right outside your window, you can see your dream home being built. Even better, you can afford it. Watching the construction through your window is like watching a movie with a guaranteed happy ending. Until suddenly, that movie gets thrown in reverse. Construction halts, and then a crew shows up and demolishes the entire project. By the time they're done, nearly all that's left are the curb cuts. We drove around the reservation, all over the reservation, encountering things like this and trying to figure out what was going on. It was almost surrealistic when you started adding them all together. You can understand if one project uh, ran into just a series of headaches, but how could all of these projects have suffered these same kinds of consequences? That's Dennis Wagner of the Arizona Republic. Dennis and another reporter, Craig Harris, spent a year and a half looking into the millions of federal dollars given each year to the Navajo Housing Authority. The money is supposed to go towards new homes and buildings. But when the reporters visited the Navajo reservation, they had a hard time finding any. On today's episode, Irie's Aaron McKinstry takes us behind the scenes on a multi-million dollar mystery. I'm Blake Nelson, and you're listening to the Irie Radio Podcast. Navajo Nation is the largest Native American reservation in the country, slightly bigger than the state of West Virginia. It stretches almost 30,000 square miles across parts of northern Arizona and New Mexico and into southeastern Utah. Sections of the reservation are so remote that there are no paved roads. Wild horses walk through towns and teenage boys herd sheep across roads. It's what some would call majestic or a step back to quieter days. Visitors pass through annually to hike the otherworldly sandstone mesas and pinnacles of Monument Valley and to buy beautiful handmade jewelry. But there's a side of the reservation that most of them are missing. As we were traveling up on the reservation, we got to the point that was almost everything you saw was so shocking about the projects that got built and that were never finished or or things that were boarded up. I mean, that was one of the hardest things to see is just to see how people live in just abject poverty and, and no one is really stepping up to help them. That's Craig Harris, an investigative reporter at the Arizona Republic. Complex historical factors have put Native Americans across the country at a socioeconomic disadvantage. The median income on the Navajo Nation Reservation is only around $20,000 a year. That's about $30,000 less than the national average. The unemployment rate sits above 40%. But it wasn't a lack of funding that led to the boarded-up windows that Craig and fellow Republic reporter Dennis Wagner found. The Navajo Housing Authority was getting millions of taxpayer dollars from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. The money was meant to build and renovate homes for people on the reservation. At one point, they had $477 million in surplus that wasn't being spent. Here's Dennis. Part of the problem was you had this agency that wasn't getting work done and wasn't accomplishing its mission and was receiving huge amounts of money and not spending it. 
the same time, we found that when Navajo Housing Authority did spend money, it was often squandered, and um, in some cases, especially historically, there was obvious fraud. The reservation needed an estimated 34,000 additional homes, and about as many were in desperate need of renovation. But when Craig and Dennis started digging, they discovered that the Navajo Housing Authority was only building two to 300 homes a year, max. Some of those properties were built so poorly that they had to be torn down. From 2008 to 2011, they didn't build a single home. There is such a tremendous need for, for homes for the people who are living on the Navajo Reservation. And the Navajo Housing Authority, you know, by all accounts, has, has really not done their job to provide the housing that's needed. And there's just been a litany of, of waste and mismanagement and just questionable decisions that have left so many people frustrated and, and, and not received the homes that they desperately need. Solving the mystery behind the Navajo Housing Authority's failures wasn't easy. They contended with unresponsive HUD officials, with open records laws that no one had to follow, and with sources who feared losing their homes or contracts if they spoke out against the housing authority. And when they did get answers, they weren't straightforward. Multiple people were responsible for the failures. Politics played a role. The complicated relationship between HUD and the Navajo Housing Authority was a factor. There wasn't one person, agency, or cause behind the breakdown, and that made it hard to hold someone accountable. But Craig and Dennis kept digging for a year and a half. And they were able to find and tell the stories of some of the people who had suffered the most. It all started with a number, $83 million. That's about how much a routine press release from HUD showed the Navajo Housing Authority was receiving annually. The number stood out to Arizona Republic editor Pat Flannery. So he asked Craig and Dennis to look into it. He said, oh, this is interesting. Uh, why don't you just check this out and you know, turn, a, turn a quick story on this? But the story wasn't quick. It turned into a lengthy reporting endeavor that took Craig, Dennis, and photographer Mike Chow to the reservation six or seven times. They're a long ways away from us. They're a good five-hour drive. So we don't have someone who's continually writing about um, the Navajo tribe. They started by pulling records from HUD and doing online research, but it didn't take long for them to realize they had a much bigger project on their hands. So they started divvying up the responsibilities. Dennis and Craig have known each other for a long time, and they've worked together on quite a few investigations. Craig's daughter takes tennis lessons from Dennis's wife. They think highly of one another, to say the least. Craig and I are extremely close friends, and we have been for many, many years. He's a consummate investigative journalist. He's tenacious, he's professional, he's smart, and he is just fun to be around. When we're working on a project, um, we can kind of read each other's minds, and we divide up the labor based in part on what we're both best at. The great thing about Dennis is that He's not concerned who gets the credit. He will fight and make sure that other people's names go first and stories, even if he does the majority of the work. I mean, he is a guy that a lot of reporters here like to work with because he is so collaborative. And I think when you can find someone like that, it makes things go a lot better. Craig took on a lot of the documents and data. Dennis was the leader when they headed up to the reservation. 
He'd worked on a number of stories about the Navajo and other tribes in the area, and that experience was invaluable. I think I understood from working with multiple tribes that you have to be really culturally sensitive. You have to be aware that there are different ways of thinking. Um, Journalists recognize that almost intuitively anyway because we come across so many different types of people, cultures, mindsets. I always approach this working on on the reservation with kind of a heightened sensitivity or an antenna that's up to keep me aware of that. And at the same time, um, I've worked enough with Native Americans so that I've gotten over what can be kind of an inhibiting factor, and that is to think that they're different from other people as individuals. They're just they're people like all the rest of us. They have flaws and they have great character uh, assets, but you can't think of them as different in that respect. It didn't take long for the reporters to realize that the information they could get from HUD online wasn't going to cut it. They needed audit reports and budgets and documents that had been submitted to HUD from the Navajo Housing Authority. So Craig started writing FOIA requests. He asked that records be sent piecemeal as soon as they were ready, so he didn't have to wait for the entire request to be filled. And as they trickled in, Craig used Excel to create a database. So we would take, you know, literally thousands of pages of documents from HUD, and we would put that and transform that into a database that we could look at to see how the spending was going every year. We took 18 years' worth of annual reports and broke down um, data from every single one of those years and put it into different spending categories. And that's how we were able to see a lot of things and how things would pop out, especially like the spending on overhead. This is also how they found out that very few homes were actually being built, despite the large amounts of money the Navajo Housing Authority was receiving from HUD. Craig and Dennis also went straight to the Navajo Housing Authority to ask for their records. But because the Navajo Nation is a sovereign entity, it has its own public records laws. Here, again, Dennis was able to draw on past experience. A few years ago, I did a piece on um, FOIA and how it works in Indian country. And in fact, it doesn't because only a couple of tribes have uh, freedom of information type laws. The Navajo Nation is one of the few tribes that does actually have a law. The problem, Dennis says, is that it's not necessarily enforceable. If they decide not to give you something, there's nothing you can do to make them. So the reporters tried a different tactic. They were transparent about what they were doing, and they simply asked for what they needed. I don't do ambush-style journalism. We told the Navajo Housing Authority exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it and how we were going about doing it. And I think that um, they probably, in the end, were frustrated with the um, results of our report. But I also think that they would tell you that we were fair and open with them. And because we were transparent. I think that they at least trusted us enough to give us some of the records that we needed. This isn't the first time the Navajo Housing Authority had come under scrutiny. In 2007, they underwent multiple investigations from the Office of Inspector General, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, and Congress. A man named William Aubrey, who'd been building houses on the reservation, was convicted of misappropriating money and sentenced to prison. Then-Executive Director Chester Carl had been accused of accepting bribes from Aubrey, but was later acquitted. Carl resigned, leaving behind a trail of broken systems, failed construction projects, and misused money. 
he actually agreed to a video interview for the project. After leaving the Navajo, he'd gone on to run the housing authority for the Hopi Reservation. And so I called him at the Hopi Housing Authority and um, got him on the phone, and he was more than willing to talk to me. He insisted that he had done a great service to the Navajo Nation. He had built a bunch of homes for them, and there had been problems, but um, he was a a victim of excessive government oversight and uh, political shenanigans and things like that. So I asked him if I could come up and visit with him, and he said fine. After Carl, the current executive director, A.J. Yazzie, took over. Yazzie attributed a lot of the current troubles to the past administration. But by the time Craig and Dennis had started looking into things, almost 10 years had passed, and not much had changed. And when they compared the Navajo Housing Authority's records with the records submitted to HUD, things didn't line up. We were looking at the reports from HUD, and we found them to be extremely questionable because they did not seem to be consistent and the numbers didn't seem to self-verify, so to speak. Surprisingly, when they started asking Yazzie about specific numbers and why progress wasn't being made, she did her best to answer. Most of the time, the answer was either you can get those answers from our report to HUD or we will get those numbers for you. I wouldn't say it was... Uh, adversarial in the sense that anybody was hostile. We were just trying to get information, and to the and she was articulate and, and thoughtful and was seemingly trying to get information to us. In general, Yazi was open with them. She sat down for multiple in-person interviews. She said that she walked into a mess when she took over and had spent much of her time trying to put systems in place, like ethical standards and accurate mapping of the reservation. She said many of the houses were raised because they'd been improperly built. She's under a lot of scrutiny. She's under a lot of pressure. And I think she's trying to do the best she can. I mean, she grew up there on the reservation. She grew up, um, you know, pretty impoverished. Uh, She's made a name for herself. She's gone off to college. She's worked both as a state regulator and a federal regulator. And so I do think she really is trying. Craig and Dennis worked hard to portray that complexity in their piece. Her headquarters for the Navajo Housing Authority is on the eastern side of the nation, which is right near uh, Gallup, New Mexico, she hadn't even been to a lot of places on the western side of the reservation. And so I don't think she'd really gotten out much to know her her tribe that well. And so because she didn't really understand much about some of the issues that we were bringing up about on the western side of the state. At the time of the investigation, Congress was threatening to take away the millions of dollars that the Navajo Housing Authority had in surplus. And with all of the problems that the Navajo Housing Authority had encountered in the past, Craig and Dennis wondered why HUD wasn't paying more attention to how their money was being spent. What they found was complicated, like almost everything else. HUD distributes roughly $650 million a year to hundreds of tribes all across the country for for the simple purpose of building homes and helping people to have adequate, safe housing who live on, the re- on these reservations. Craig said HUD is supposed to regulate how the money is spent, but because the tribes are sovereign nations and the money is given out in lump sums, they only step in if they have to. This allows tribes to do things that Craig said would raise an eyebrow. Like, for example, the Navajo Housing Authority took its board and a bunch of people to Hawaii for a conference using housing dollars. Well, that raised some issues, but it's within their purview because they called it training. And so as long as you don't spend over 20% of your funding on 
training and management, you can spend it however you want. Craig wanted to ask HUD officials about this, but although they'd been responsive when it came to public records requests, he couldn't get anybody to go on the record for an interview. That was incredibly frustrating. I had a very short interview with the former HUD director because he happened to be in Phoenix. And so I kind of had to do an ambush interview with him. They didn't want to do any any on-the-record interviews at all. So it was almost all from documents and all from records that we had to quote from because no one would talk. And it's just, it's, it's part of it is such a weird, weird culture in D.C. that everyone wants to speak on background or not for attribution or off the record. And we just don't do that out here. With all the struggles to gather documents and data and get the numbers straight, Craig and Dennis also needed to find real people who'd been affected by the failings of the housing authority. And that presented its own set of challenges. We drove onto the reservation, and one of the first little communities you enter on the reservation is uh, just a little village. It's a trading post basically called Cameron. And we just kind of drove around that community for a few minutes and um, I pulled up and I found a chapter house. Um, the Navajo Nation has 110 chapters. They're like many states uh, within the nation. And I drove up to the chapter house and I started talking to somebody there and they told me that they had a Navajo Housing Authority project that they were living in, but they no longer resided in it because it had become too problematic. Type structure, and she had a handicapped child, um, and there was uh, a huge metal um, wheelchair ramp up to it. But they were no longer residing in it because there was roof problems and other problems. And she told us about how long they had been on waiting lists and all kinds of other. It was just a myriad of problems that they'd had. Craig and Dennis drove around the reservation with their eyes peeled for success stories. The Navajo Housing Authority claimed to have helped a lot of people, and they were getting a lot of money to do it. But looking around the reservation, they didn't find many. The nicest buildings in town were usually the offices of the Navajo Housing Authority. New, well-built, and fenced in. And then we drove to uh, the town of Cayenta, and Cayenta had this uh, women's shelter. And so, you know, we spent most of a couple of days um, trying to learn what the hell happened with this women's shelter. How could you build a shelter for women? It turns out it was for women and children and um, who were victims of domestic violence. How could you build this shelter? And we found homeless people living right outside of the shelter. And we've, we were trying to understand what went wrong. Why would you build it? and then fence it and not use it. The answer, like almost everything else they found, wasn't simple. In general, building on the reservation can be hard. Most of the land isn't private, it's in a public land trust, and 
a lot of places where people live are really remote. Setting up basic utilities can be hard. Funding approval has to go through several different government agencies, and construction has to contend with grazing rights. Sometimes there aren't good roads to access these places. So with the women's shelter, the Navajo Housing Authority said the nonprofit that was going to run the program didn't have enough funding to do it. But the nonprofit's tax records showed otherwise. And the nonprofit said that it was the Navajo Housing Authority that had failed. They hadn't solved the construction and permitting issues that they'd run into. This was when the organization was under the leadership of Chester Carl, and a lot of money was being misappropriated. Projects were started but never finished because they ran into financial or political hurdles. The shelter sat empty for 18 years. We drove around the reservation, all over the reservation, encountering things like this and trying to figure out what was going on. It was almost surrealistic when you started adding them all together. You can understand if one project uh, ran into just a series of headaches, but how could all of these projects have suffered these same kinds of consequences? Remember that scenario Blake described at the beginning of this episode? Well, in 2004, that's exactly what happened to Carletta Begay. Carletta watched out her window as construction crews built a subdivision of new homes next door. She thought she might be the proud owner of one someday soon. She'd been renting a flat-topped box home with her four children and husband. It was only two bedrooms and a few hundred square feet. Her husband was a truck driver, and they could afford the payments on a better house. But with no private developers or privately owned rentals to turn to, Carletta couldn't buy or rent a home on her own. She had to depend on the Navajo Housing Authority to arrange it for her. One thing that that she thought was going to be the greatest thing of all was they'd have a garage, because there's no garages up there. They would actually have a driveway, and she would actually thought that, you know, the roads would be paved and they'd actually have names on the roads. But she didn't get a garage because one day construction suddenly stopped. And then a few years ago, she watched them come in and demolish all but one of the new homes outside her window. The only things left were the curb cuts. It was sad. This is a total waste. I mean, those there were nice homes. They tore all the foundation, the water lines, everything. There would have been a lot of people who had who would be living in, in a better home. That was Carletta speaking with Craig and Dennis while photographer Mike Chow captured audio. She said it's difficult to keep up with the heat bill in her current home, even though it's only a few hundred square feet. You could see the, the, the space in between the, our door. Stand there and you could feel all that cold air coming in during the summer, I mean during the winter. At first, she was kind of standoffish, didn't really want to talk with us. But after we came back, she was much more open to helping us. And she even said, hey, I'll show you where these other homes were. And so she got in our truck and drove around. And, and part of it was once we were there and we didn't judge, you know, she realized she could we could tell her story. And what's amazing is, like, if you go into her home, it, it's just, it's really small. The washing machine is, is right next to the kitchen sink and the refrigerator. And, you know, it, it's so cluttered and you can't even get a, a full couch into the living room because it, it, there's not enough room. Um, and, you know, 
their the home was just falling apart, and it was just kind of sad. Craig and Dennis traveled to parts of the reservation in Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, finding stories of botched housing projects and long waiting lists almost everywhere they went. Some people immediately talked to them, but many were skeptical, and it took return visits to get them to open up. Craig and Dennis couldn't get a single contractor to talk on the record because they feared losing contracts with the Navajo Housing Authority. Still, after more than a year of reporting, they had the data, documents, and now the voices to tell the story of what had gone wrong on the reservation. But they weren't quite finished. One thing that I also learned from going to an IRE conference is you need to find a solution. And so I went and I found out, well, what's a tribe that does it really, really well? And there was a tribe in, in Oklahoma that spends money really well. So myself and Mike Chow, our photographer, went to Oklahoma and spent a few days there to see how a tribe does things right with federal funds to build homes. The Oklahoma tribe they visited, the Cherokee Nation, doesn't contend with a lot of the same issues the Navajo Nation does. They aren't as remote, and they have more of the necessary infrastructure in place, like water, paved roads, and electricity. They have Walmarts, restaurants, and businesses, which means there's a lot more jobs. But they still get about $28 million a year from HUD, and they spend every penny. They figure out where the money's needed most, and that's where they spend it. They even provide college student housing. Craig and Dennis began the writing process for the story while they were still reporting. So by the time they were ready to publish, it had gone through six major rewrites. We'd pass the story back and forth, adding and subtracting, and, you know, develop the idea for it kind of out of that. And it, so it was outlining by writing, I was supposed you'd say. They sent drafts back and forth to editors, trying to fit the 18-month-long investigation into a coherent series of articles. More importantly, trying to develop a narrative arc where you're telling about all of these problems with this housing agency, but you're humanizing it by building a story around an individual or a group of people's efforts to get housing and how it impacted them. As often happens when things are so confusing and and not all the data is available, um, we never really finished it, but we finished it enough to say that uh, there are serious problems here. They also consulted with Lita Beck, who grew up on the Navajo Reservation and who produced the digital version of the series. Since you're dealing with two, you know, middle-aged or older middle-aged Caucasian white guys, it was really good to have Lita, who grew up on the reservation, to make sure that we were approaching things accurately and also having a sensitivity. So that might be some advice I would give to someone else, that if you were writing about a really sensitive issue or an issue that we're going into a culture that you don't understand, if you don't have someone in your newsroom who is from that culture or from that background, it wouldn't hurt to let someone else come in and talk with that person and bounce off some ideas. In December, the series went live. It was a relief to us to finally get the story in print. Um, We're both uh, really proud of it, not just the work that we did, but I thought the presentation of that story by all of our the members of the graphics team, I thought it was just uh, a beautiful story to view in terms of how it rolled out online and that kind of thing. And Mike Chow's photography is absolutely stunning. So it was really good to, to get it all all done. And, get, and it was 
nice to have it, to see it all there in print, and to hopefully it will make a difference. I mean, you know, to get it out there, HUD did go up and, and do a, a on-site um, review, and hopefully a lot of the things that we pointed out, they'll get corrected. Craig says they went to a town hall on the reservation after the series came out, and local residents thanked them for their work. And the Navajo Housing Authority made changes to their board, reducing the number of members from seven to five and requiring them to have experience in housing. Hopefully, maybe later this year, there'll be some big changes on the things we wrote about that, you know, some of the homes and problems we wrote about will get fixed and people will actually be living there. And that women's shelter that they visited in Cayenta that had sat dormant for 18 years, the nonprofit in charge of the program and people in town were able to gather enough funds to cover the necessary repairs. After nearly two decades of disrepair, it opened its doors last fall after Dennis and Craig began asking questions. Thanks for listening. Check out our episode notes for links to the Arizona Republic series, as well as additional resources for reporters covering sovereign nations. The podcast will be taking a short break while everyone here at IRE gears up for our annual conference in Phoenix. We'll be back with new episodes in July. Until then, check out our archives at iree.org slash podcast. We have more than 50 episodes for you to binge listen. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, the time is now. You will automatically get our next episode when it comes out this summer. No thinking required. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Aaron McKinstry reported this story. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Blake Nelson. IRE. 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 Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that over. Okay. Podcast.